We come to the end of the book of Kings, 2 Kings, this morning. And we're only going to read a few verses. Last week was very long and this week is very short. Let me start by reading 2 Kings 25, 27 through 30. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Now it came about in the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiachin, king of Judah, in the 12th month, on the 27th day of the month, that evil Merodach, king of Babylon, in the year that he became king, released Jehoiachin, king of Judah, from prison. And he spoke kindly to him and set his throne above the throne of the kings who were with him in Babylon. Jehoiachin changed his prison clothes and had his meals in the king's presence regularly all the days of his life. And for his allowance, a regular allowance was given him by the king, a portion for each day, all the days of his life. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Well, the ending of the book of Kings is abrupt, isn't it? That's it. You heard it. After all that history of starting with David and Solomon and the splitting of the kingdoms and fast-forwarding through so many years and watching the slow but perpetual fall away from the Lord, first of Israel, then of Judah. We come to the end and the judgment has been poured out. They've been taken away into captivity. And then it tells this little story about Jehoiachin. Jehoiachin, who had been king and had come out from uh, his city when it was besieged and was taken into captivity in Babylon. It ends with this statement that in the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiachin, king of Judah. So, that's approximately uh, twice as long as he had been alive before he was taken captive. 37 years in exile. All right, 37 years in exile. Very short amount of time as king. 37 years in exile. And after 37 years in exile, evil Merodach becomes king and releases Jehoiachin from prison. Why? It doesn't say. We don't know. But the author of Kings has a point in ending the story this way. 
Now, here's the funny thing. The point is debated. The point is debated, and you have people on completely opposite ends of the spectrum. Okay? Some people look at this and say, it ends on such a down note. And then, with, with the fall of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple, and it just goes one step lower with Jehoiachin in saying that Jehoiachin <clears throat> was sitting with evil Merodach, the king of Babylon, dependent on him, hobnobbing with him. And I think that that's the wrong view. I think that what's going on here actually is that there's a little turn, a little hook at the end of the story. Yes, everything has gone all the way down to the very bottom, as we saw last week, with the complete destruction of the temple, the complete obliteration of the city, the destruction of all of the largest houses even in the city, the removal of most of the people from the land, multiple times, right? <clears throat> yes, we, we've made it to the very bottom of that hook. And this is the little bit of turn at the bottom of that hook, up, and then the story ends. And what it indicates to us is that there is hope for a future still. It does not end with Jehoiachin in the 37th year of his exile being brought out and beheaded. It ends with Jehoiachin, who was the king for a very brief time, right? Who is of the line of David, being released from prison and having his head raised up? Is it because of anything good that Jehoiachin did? Well, we don't get any indication of that, do we? In fact, we know that Jehoiachin was a wicked king. It said so earlier as we were reading, as we were going through the book. When he was taken into captivity, it wasn't like he had repented. It wasn't as though he was one of the good kings. <clears throat> but here he is. The rest of his life, able to be lived in peace, in captivity. And so, I say that it's the, the bottom has been reached and the hook has come up, but it hasn't come up very far, has it? He's still in captivity. The people are still spread throughout the kingdom of Babylon. He's still not king over Judah anymore, is he? Who's king over Judah? Evil Merodach is king over Judah. The kingdom has been destroyed. Nevertheless, 
the line of David continues. The line of David continues. Remember what God had covenanted with David. I'm going to read you a passage from 2 Samuel 7. The Lord sends a message to David. And here's what God says. I have been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make you a great name, like the names of the great men who are on the earth. I will also appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again. Nor will the wicked afflict them anymore as formerly, even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you, who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him, as I took it away from Saul, when I removed whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. This covenant that God made with, with David, <clears throat> God is the one who made it, and he is the one who makes the promise, and he is the one who will fulfill it. And what we see at the end of Kings is that this promise has not been forgotten. That in spite of the discipline that the Lord has sent on his people, and on their kings of the line of David, he has not forgotten his promise. God is the one who established his covenant with us. He fulfilled his promises for David in his son Christ Jesus. Jesus was that eternal king, the son of God. And he is the one that is establishing a house forever. God is building that house for him, for his son, right? <clears throat> Nevertheless, this story takes place long before Jesus comes. And so the author is writing long before the ultimate fulfillment of that promise. And the author 
wants the people to know how we got from that promise to the depths of the destruction of the city in Jerusalem, right? And the casting out of the people, which, you know, what what did we just read? They may live in their own place. They won't be disturbed again. The wicked won't afflict them anymore as formerly. All these things are happening. All of these things are happening. Has God forgotten what he said to David? No, God has not forgotten his covenant with David. He is fulfilling his covenant with David. And we just get that little reminder. The line of David has not been lost. God still knows who David was. God still has a plan for the restoration of his kingdom. And the people of Israel were very confused at this time and for many, many years afterwards because they thought, ultimately, if you fast forward from here to the time when Jesus is born, they thought the entire time that what they were looking forward to was an earthly kingdom. And that's still our temptation today, to think that what we are after is an earthly kingdom. But Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world, in spite of the fact that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. His kingdom is not of this world. And so here, Jehoiachin, is raised up out of the depths, right? And there is a little reprieve. But the reprieve is not the establishing of the earthly kingdom again. The reprieve is who's over you doesn't matter. God is the one who lifts up your head, if your head is lifted up. Read Psalm 3. You, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory, and the one who lifts my head. Jehoiachin had his head lifted from the depths, didn't he? And isn't it a glorious gift to him? Isn't it a glorious gift to us to see that the king that was weak in earthly terms, the king that went out and submitted himself to Nebuchadnezzar, which is to humble himself under the discipline of the Lord, he has his head lifted up. And the king that is strong and rebels against King Nebuchadnezzar and will never, ever, ever give in, Zedekiah. Zedekiah is obliterated. Zedekiah is gone. 
But who remains in the end? Jehoiachin. Jehoiachin remains. Now, if you read the story of Jehoiachin, you read that he was a wicked king. You read that he was taken off into captivity and spent 37 years there. You might... uh, you might be inclined to think, yeah, nobody wants to be like Jehoiachin, right? But you better ask yourself who the options are in the story. When it comes to the end of the kingdom, you're dealing with Three wicked kings, all in a row. And two of them are gone, and Jehoiachin remains. Jehoiachin is the one that you want to be. If you're punished, you want to be the one that receives the discipline, and it doesn't matter how long it lasts or how painful it is, that in the end, God is merciful and lifts your head. That's what you want. And 37 years is awful, right? Most of you can't even fathom that in this room. 37? It is awful. He was in prison that whole time. And then at the end of that 37 years, he had his head lifted up by an evil king, evil Merodach, all right? And he lived maybe one or two years. But the last two years of his life, he was no longer in prison. He was given food for himself and his household. He sat above the other kings that were in captivity. And he received... A blessing. Well, if you view Jehoiachin properly and say, okay, well, yeah, if I have to choose between being Jehoiachin and being Zedekiah, obviously I choose being Jehoiachin, right? You might even be tempted to say, well, look at what mercy God has on Jehoiachin. I guess it doesn't really matter what we do. I guess that I can do whatever and in the end, God will be merciful to me. Now, many, many people live their life this way today, believing that, you know, they've done bad things, yes, but in the end, when I die and I face the judgment, I think God will see 
that I tried. And he'll be merciful. He'll be merciful to me. And it doesn't really matter what I did in this life. There are a lot of ways that people have false hope. One of those ways is simply by saying, well, you know, in the end, I believe God is a loving God. God is merciful. And so, I'm just going to trust that he's never actually going to make anybody suffer like Zedekiah. You see, we're ignoring the story. We're ignoring what God has actually done. Everyone is going to get Jehoiachin's treatment in the end. No, not according to this story, right? Not everybody gets Jehoiachin's mercy after discipline. But that's not the only false hope that people have. It's not the only false hope that people have in this time frame either. The people at this time had put their trust not in God and in God's mercy. They had put their trust in God's physical gifts to them. They might have even called them God's covenant promises. Remember what David was told by the Lord. I will give you rest from all your enemies. They will not be disturbed and afflicted as they formerly were by evil people. Right? We're just believing God's promises. And look, we have his temple where he has promised that he will be present among his people. We have the temple of the Lord. What could possibly happen when we have the temple of the Lord? All through the end of this story, in the background, not not mentioned in Kings, not brought into directly into the story as it's told, is the prophet Jeremiah. And Jeremiah, when you read the book of Jeremiah, you've got some passages that are just word for word what you see in 2 Kings. In fact, I think it was last week, our passage had a section of four or five verses that you can just go and you can read in Jeremiah as well. And so Jeremiah was the prophet that lived through, among others, but Jeremiah wrote the, the, the longest book on this whole time frame and what the words of God were to his people during this time. And what we see as we read Jeremiah is that the people had put their trust not actually in God, but in God's gifts to them. Listen to this from Jeremiah chapter 7, verses 1 through 7. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Stand in the gate of the Lord's house. This is the temple. This is what they had put their trust in. 
and proclaim there this word and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you of Judah who enter by these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in deceptive words, saying, This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly practice justice between a man and his neighbor, if you do not oppress the alien, the orphan, or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, nor walk after other gods to your own ruin, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave to your fathers forever and ever. It couldn't be clearer, could it? God has said, it's deceptive words to put your hope in. The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. But I will let you stay. You know how late this is in the game? (laughs) Remember, we've seen Josiah, right? We've seen Hezekiah. We've seen their repentance and God letting them stay. But he said the judgment is coming. And, And here Jeremiah says, Look, I know you've heard David's promise from God, right? I know you remember Solomon building the house and my presence coming down and dwelling in the cloud of thick darkness. You remember that my glory came down and rested here. And yeah, You are a people called out from the world, chosen to be my people. What a glorious thing. And all of these things are true of us. The people of God have been called out from the world, chosen, set apart to be a royal priesthood. A holy nation. What a gift we've been given. And yet, those very people, the church of that time, the Israelites, the chosen people of the Lord, had stopped putting their faith in the God who chose them and instead had begun to put their faith in the fact that they had the temple. Now, that's weird if you think about it. Because To put your faith in the temple, in the fact that you have the temple, that you're in Jerusalem, that the temple's in Jerusalem, that it's a glorious temple, implies that you're putting your faith in the God who dwells there. Right? But they clearly had not. Because their deeds were not holy. Their ways needed to be amended. 
they were coming into the temple to worship the Lord when Jeremiah gave this message to them. You'd think that that meant that they worshiped the Lord, but God says, but you're also worshiping Baals to your own ruin. And so when we come forward to today, this is our way all the time. It has always been the temptation of God's people that we want to put our trust in the signs of God's blessing rather than in him who we cannot see. What are the signs of God's blessing to the Jews as the temple stands? The temple. Right? And what does God do? We saw it last week. He takes the temple away because they must not put their faith in the temple, but they must instead trust in the God who cannot be seen. 37 years in exile, Jehoiachin is in prison. There's no temple to be seen. It's long gone. And yet, is God prevented from acting without the temple? No. He can take Jehoiachin out of prison anytime he wants, and he does. Through the hands of a wicked king, not of his people. God restores the fortunes of Jehoiachin. He doesn't need the temple to act. The temple is not our hope. God is our hope. And so it is in his mercy at times that he takes away the physical sign of his covenant so that we remember that it is in God whom we trust. Listen to this quote from a commentary on this passage. It says, When a church or a nation reaches the point of saying, The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are these. That is, when it puts its trust in externals, in ceremonies, and sacred houses and sacred things, while the spirit of truth and righteousness is lost and treats God's promises as if he had bound his own hands against punishing their sins, their fate is sealed. God has bound his hands. But he has not bound his hands against the punishment of sin. He has bound his hands by his own character to pour out his wrath on sin. That is his permanent perpetual promise. In the day you eat of it, you will surely die. It's awful. And yet, he has promised, 
He has bound his own hands that he will save a people for himself. His hands are tied because his word is never broken. But the moment that we put our faith in externals and say he cannot punish us, we have the temple of the Lord. We are the people of God. And so what I do doesn't matter. I can sin. Our fate is sealed, is what the commentator says, right? Exile. What? How is this possible? We were worshiping. We came to church every week. We baptized our children. They took the Lord's Supper. How could they suffer in this way? How could, how could he be so unfaithful to his promises? That could never happen. Look, he says, remember what he said to David? An eternal house. You think Jerusalem's going to fall? Uh-uh. You see the temptation, right? We, we misunderstand when we think it's the kingdom of this world. That wasn't God's plan. That wasn't God's promise. They had forgotten Solomon's statement at the building of the temple. Oh, they remember some things, right? Remember. Do they remember this, when Solomon says, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house which I have built. It can't be of this earth, can it? Solomon knew that even as he built the temple. We cannot control God through the sacraments that he has given us. We don't have some sort of external sign in the kingdom of this earth that is what accomplishes God's promises. We have God himself. Who accomplishes his promises. It is ever so much more. And the signs only point to him. Only point to the ultimate fulfillment of the promise. They are not the ultimate fulfillment. Jesus Christ was the ultimate fulfillment. When we eat bread and wine, they don't become Jesus' body and blood in some sort of physical, mystical way that makes it so that now we have Jesus Christ himself in the flesh. No, what we have is his eternal promise given to us in the sign and the seal, yes, of that meal. 
And it's a glorious gift to us, just as the temple was a glorious gift to the people, reminding them to look to him at all times, to trust in him at all times. And so as we end the book of Kings, let us remember that God is the one who established his covenant with this people. And as you see that bottom and the end with the turn just barely starting to come up with Jehoiachin, he doesn't forget us because he has promised. He remembers his covenant. He will fulfill it. But if we put our faith in the signs of the covenant and become convinced that we have nothing to fear because we have our baptism and the Lord's Supper, we have our outward obedience, then let us remember Solomon's prayer as the temple is built and he dedicates it. When he says, Whatever prayer or supplication is made by any man or by all your people Israel, each knowing the affliction of his own heart and spreading his hands toward this house, then hear in heaven your dwelling place and forgive and act and render to each according to all his ways whose heart you know. For you alone know the hearts of all the sons of men, that they may fear you all the days that they live in the land which you have given to our fathers. God knows what's in our hearts, doesn't he? And isn't that a scary thought? Isn't that what Solomon says? You know what's in their hearts, so that they may fear you. With the result that they may fear you all the days that they live in the land which you have given to our fathers. If God knows what's in our hearts, that's a fearful thing because we, we have a little bit of an inkling of what's in our hearts. We don't even know what's in our hearts as well as he knows what's in our hearts. But we know the wickedness that is in there. We know our need of cleansing, don't we? And so what do we do in response? We put our faith in him. He is the lifter of our heads.